That was I'm So Sad by 303. You're listening to 97.5 WOVN, The Wild Card, right here at Otterbein in Westerville, Ohio. You've just tuned in to Retrospection Radio Hour with your host Noah and Nate. Last week we did the 1910s. If you didn't stop by and listen, then feel free to go back, give it a nice little listen. We kind of went like 1800s up until like 1920. So this week, in our uh, century review, I suppose is what it is, our decade review, we're going to be doing the 1920s. So when I say 1920s, what do you think? Prohibition, flappers, silent film, big bands, and a lot of lavishness. You're not wrong. Uh, And also Art Deco. When it comes to the 1920s, 1920s is when we listened to, or sorry, we had sound on film for the first time. Um, It was Irving Berlin's Blue Skies in 1926. I'll have to search that back up. I don't remember what it was called. Uh, But that's when we first got sound in film. Uh, 1920, the August 18th, uh, women got something that was pretty nice. The 19th Amendment. This is true. This is a good thing. Yes, this is uh, this is women's suffrage. The Nineteenth Amendment uh, it allows women to go off and vote because you can no longer what was it? You can no longer be denied the right to the right to vote based on sex. That is kind of a weird thing to think about. They're just like, nah, you're like a woman, so you can't vote. <laughs> like what? <laughs> it's like, just why not? So history is very, very weird to me in the sense of so many things happen and so little things happen. It's it's very weird to think 100 years ago, I guess 101 years ago, I, more like 102. No, I'm getting into it. 102 years ago, women couldn't vote. And now, because it's 1920 when this happens and it's 2021. That's not that long ago. No, it's not long at all in times of history or in terms of history. Like I mean, the grand scheme of things, like that is very recent. I mean, England has been around as England and the Anglo Saxons since I think it's 500, 600 when we started seeing like the Anglicans and the Saxons and the Vikings and all them coming in. So uh, don't quote me on the date. It's definitely somewhere between like. Because you have 1066, and by that point you have Normandy, uh, which are the French, and then you have the Vikings, and you have England, and the basically England's fighting them off, and that's, yes, 1066. Uh, so before that, England was becoming England, and at the time of the Romans, England was starting to unify a little bit, but, I mean, everyone was still very much so tribal, and the Romans were kind of like, we actually don't need this. This is a really crappy piece of land. Why would we want it? And they got beaten by Boudicca. So, eh. Maybe getting beaten by Boudicca or maybe just kind of looking around England, they were like, yeah, we don't want to keep England. I mean, England is kind of a weird place. <laughs> yes, I, uh, when I think of England, I definitely don't think of very positive things. I mean, it's nice. I enjoy the political system enough. And the history for England gets interesting. It kind of starts off boring. But, like, once you get to Vikings and just, you know, you have churches in England and the Vikings come in and they're like, yeah, we're going to kill everybody. And you have, like, pastor. There was a pastor who was writing. And I don't remember what he was writing. He was writing something Christian. 
and a Viking came in, and the pastor was continued writing, but he wrote down the conversation he was having, and he was like, why did you come in to the house of God? And the Viking's like, I'm here to kill you. And he's like, well, allow us to talk, and then there's no more writing after that. So the, <laughs> the the assumption is he's probably pretty dead. It's like let's talk about it. No. <laughs> well, and that was the thing that the Vikings loved so much was they just walked into a church and then they could slaughter everyone. Vikings were weird, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So today, 1920s. First thing we already talked about was women's suffrage. And also movies started to get like really they really started like they started going up there oh yeah like you got like especially horror movies started to get like really a lot more like created like innovative like you had like german expressionism going on like nosferatu was 1922 that's one of my favorites but then you go even earlier and you've got the cabinet of dr caligari from like 1920 and that's like a lot of like very a lot of a lot of horror movie tropes kind of come from that movie and it's also very just like dreamlike you can kind of see like a lot of where tim burton got gets his inspiration from just the really warped scenery and stuff like that really dreamlike it's a really good movie but nosferatu is really good i used to like i think i heard about it when i was really young for some reason like elementary school young and i watched it then although i couldn't really follow it but this was before I realized that, like, a lot of silent films that are just kind of put out there for public consumption, because, like, a lot of them are in the public domain. Like, Nosferatu's in the public domain. Yep. So a lot of people just put it out there with just stock music over it and, like, low quality. So, like, didn't really... Like, so it's kind of hard to watch. There's a little more detachment. But then, like, I found out somewhat recently that a lot of the silent films had scores written with them and they had live orchestras play while the movies were playing in the theaters. So I f- I managed to find the original version of Nosferatu with the original score and like I guess it was like color tinted too. Like at nighttime the, the frames would be like colored blue or like daytime it'd be like yellow and like dawn and dusk would be pink and like it's a it's like when you watch it in that format like the movie make like it it kind of gives it a little more context and it's just like wow this is like what the movie's supposed to look like and it's like it's actually like it's really good (laughs) but yeah and then you got um what else was there the phantom of the opera with lon chaney (laughs) lon chaney was really like hunchback of notre dame and stuff like that in fifth grade, my teacher had a old projector, so he brought in Phantom like of the Opera. Like a film projector? Yeah. Oh, really? And he played Phantom of the Opera for all of the fifth grade class. Of course, we as kids were like, this is so, so boring. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I enjoyed it as a kid. The one yeah. thing I didn't like was Titanic. We watched like the original Titanic, and it was black oh, and yeah. white. I don't remember what it was. And I was just like, uh... It looks almost silly that everyone's jumping off the uh, Titanic into the water because they sped it up a little bit. Because well, they didn't speed it up. It's that was just however fast the camera operator was 
cranking the camera. Exactly. It's like it's kind of weird to watch some old silent movies because like the speed is all over the place, and you can tell like when it speeds up or like when it's like kind of like it's either too fast or maybe a little too slow. Sometimes it's right on there. It's like oh wow, but like never. It's never perfect. So we do movies and television now in 24 frames per second. And the way that speeding up or slow motion works, uh, you film in 60 frames a second, which matters a lot more when it comes to video games, not really when it comes to uh, film. So then you take 60 frames a second, and then to slow it down, you divide it in half, put it to 30, and everything's in slow-mo. And it still looks good without it being jumping and stuttery, because if you were to take 24 frames and split it in half, you would get a silent film. So now, since everything has been adapted to play at 24 frames per second, you've run into the issue of trying to watch a silent film, which is meant for between 10 and 12 frames, generally 12 frames a second, and now everything looks like it's sped up because you've doubled the amount of frames, but it doesn't actually have doubled the amount of frames. So that's why everything looks so fast. And also because of the, uh, like when they filmed it, they didn't, the cameras didn't really have like motors or at least like electric motors. A lot of it was kind of like, you're just kind of cranking it and then going like, sometimes it would depend on how fast you crank <laughs> the handle. It's like, if you cranked it too fast, it would film fast. And it's just like, oh. it just seems like, it's like, man. <laughs> I I can't imagine. You'd have to have like, music playing in your head like one two three four and one just going in your mind as you crank it because otherwise it's gonna be it's gonna mess up yeah and how many <laughs> i mean it's already hard enough to film a movie and get the perfect shot i can only imagine how many hours and days people must spend before they just go all right you know what this cut is good enough <laughs> especially like like a lot of the movies from the 20s like the silent films so many of them are lost like we don't know where they are and it's like that's even weirder to think about because they didn't they weren't really ones for preserving film like i think one of the most famous ones is um well not was uh oh what was it it's called london after midnight it was like i think about a detective who is investigating some sort of crime but he disguises himself as a vampire (laughs) and to like you know fool them into thinking like ah this place has a vampire but lon chaney plays the the quote-unquote vampire but it's like a really famous lost film and like there's no known copy of it that exists it's like one of the holy grails of like horror and like there's there's all sorts of other ones too from the 20s just all sorts of like films that are just like known about but like they're just not around and like <laughs> i think there's other ones there's one called like the golem which is like about like the jewish folklore of like the golem that like protects people and stuff that's like made out of clay yeah and i think only one of those films survives but the other two like no one really knows where they are. Maybe there's like I think there's like a few minutes of footage that exists of one, but like it's kind of weird to think about because like a lot of them, you know, they get because the film's like really like reactive and it would like burn or just break down and deteriorate, and it's just like like ninety percent of films from that time period we just 
don't have. We don't have them. It's so like, it's so weird thinking, especially I'm, now where you can just go to Netflix yeah. and pick up any film you want or, you know, stream it on YouTube or like, something. Like imagine if like all these Marvel movies, like if in a hundred years all of them are just gone. <laughs> I can't imagine. And you can only see like Iron Man 1 and then Infinity War. Or not even that, like something random like Iron Man 3 or like <laughs> <laughs> they're talking about oh what happened in the first Avengers movie and you're like, "Yeah. What first Avengers movie?" Or like um oh like like Iron Man 3 or just like Spider-Man 2. Yeah. Just Random odd films from our childhood here and there. Yeah, just like it's like really weird to think about, and it's like, and also the fact that when they'd play a movie, a lot of the times, that's it. Like they'd play it once, and then it's just like, it's like after it had its run in theaters, they're just like, all right, throw it in the vault or throw it away. <laughs> it's like, what? It's like now, like we'd never even dream of that. It's like, no, no I would say going that's out like on, DVD. on par with like book burning or something. Just playing a mil- uh, film for you know 30 days and then tossing it away so no one can ever see it again yeah like especially like the way they did it like back then like with the live orchestras playing along with the films it's like it's like it was like an art form like just imagine like just doing a film just like no no di- i mean there is dialogue it's like visual but like i like silent films for the reason that they're just for what they don't have and like you know dialogue and music and like sound design they make up for for being like highly visual like metropolis like like this like oh, i watched I that metropolis. last night i never watched it i saw parts of it but i didn't really understand it because i was like i don't really know why but like i finally sat down and i watched the whole thing from start to finish and it was just like it was really good and there were a lot of parts that were like originally cut out after the like the movie premiered i guess so there's like a lot of like scenes that were missing that were cut back in and they couldn't find high quality like versions of them so you can tell like the parts that were cut out because they're like really scratchy looking but like it's really it's like really good like metropolis inspired a lot a a lot lot of a uh like art pieces science fiction and like well, stuff yeah. like that and like science fiction um like androids and robots and just all that but uh i'm looking at the main cover art from metropolis and i'm like i have seen this on cover albums i've seen this in sci-fi like it, it stands out the most to me for the 40s and 50s those earlier horror films that have kind of cheesy things yeah or, uh, cheesy cover arts and the film is really interesting because it's like a lot of it is like a lot of it is allegories of like the bible and stuff like there's the tower of babel and like babylon and stuff and um oh what else is there i can't really think of much else but like there's a lot of like there's talk like the seven deadly sins and stuff like that and it's like really really it's a really interesting movie. Like I was kind of like, I was kind of riveted after. Like at first I was like, okay, here we go, but then like I was seeing like all these visuals and like I was like, I was I was like actually invested in the story. Like I was like, <laughs> what's gonna happen? <laughs> so, you'll find a lot of 1920 stuff has to do with religion or World War One because those were the two major events that happened. Uh, for instance, in 1921 there was a film called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse 
which had June Mathis as MGM's first ever female executive uh, and wrote the screenplay uh, back in there. Sorry. And wrote the screenplay from the 1916 novel of the same name. Basically what that's about. It was 1921's most popular and highest grossing movie. It was an anti-war movie set in World War One, which sounds about right because World War One ended uh, just three before. years before. Yeah. In 1918, so throughout the decade, World War One has just really, really influenced this culture. So it basically talks about a family, and the family has German and French relatives, and the family is just completely divided among the Germans who now have had their economy crippled and their military crippled. And, and they just hate everybody. Exactly. They're the laughing stock of the world at this point. And then the French, who are also the laughing stock of the world, but you know they were at least with the good guys. So that, and there was a lot of death that happened. So you know you can blame the German side of the family for the death, or the French side. So it, the four horsemen, talked about uh, or made a commentary on those things. There's another one that is very uh, well. There's wasn't there like a really long. Uh, movie of like Napoleon from the 20s like it was like almost four hours or something like that Oof. Uh, let me search that up I haven't seen it but like I've seen like images of it and it looks like a really like like well made movie like there's a lot of like crazy like camera movements and like angles and stuff like that oh wow Napoleon looks interesting it does Albert's dude oh no <laughs> Albert French last name is Napoleon he looks very much so like Napoleon. Uh, so, Napoleon is a 1927 silent French epic film written, produced, and directed by Abel Gantz that tells the story of Napoleon's early years. Yes, like, it has multiple camera setups, multiple exposures. And there's like split screen too. Like there's. Exactly. Yeah. There's point of view shots. A lot of stuff that is more common in cinema today. Sounds like it was getting started in this film. Like it's, I have like I I remember I saw like a video like talking about it and I was like, how have I never heard of this movie? I was like, it's like it was really like remarkable looking. And I think uh, I think also like what you were talking about with like the the aftermath of like World War One and a lot of movies like Nosferatu, like it's a German like horror movie, and I think like there's a lot of symbolism because it's based off of. Bram Stoker's Dracula but like not entirely because they couldn't quite get the rights to it so they added some stuff in like there's something about like a plague that spreads when when a Count Orlock or Dracula comes <laughs> and um I think it was like supposed to be like oh like an allegory for like oh yes because since Germany was so you know bent out of shape about world war one they were just like really mistrusting of like foreigners and stuff like that so they made uh the dracula character like a very grotesque looking you know strange person and he comes and he brings a plague with him and it's just like it's kind of weird to think about in that context like especially like around like the climate of the time and it's like it's like what are you what are you what are you doing like they like they go off to another another country and they find you know count orlock it's like oh yes it's like pretty much just kind of like it's like yes this is an adaptation of dracula but we're also going to throw in our own 
you know, agenda while we're at it too. Well, I, I think that's what makes adaptation so good. Uh, at this time, I believe Wizard of Oz, the original one. Was it? There were there were Wizard of Oz movies from like the twenties, like uh, little shorts. That might have been what I was thinking of because the original one's in nineteen thirty nine, but that's not what I'm thinking of. Ah, Wizard of Oz, nineteen twenty five film. Uh, that added on to a lot of these depictions of different things, like Wizard of Oz or Nosferatu, take that war or Christian element, like the Four Horsemen. The Four Horsemen are mentioned in the Bible, and it's, uh, oh no, <laughs> my Christian knowledge is fading away. The book that's all about death and mayhem. Famine, pestilence, war, and death. Is yes, that it? it's that. I, I meant the, the book in the Bible... Revelation? There you go, Revelations. So a lot of stuff about Revelations in that film that isn't actually about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, and then Wizard of Oz, this is a different depiction. This is very interesting. Uh, might have to look into that one, actually. Uh, and then we've got something else called the Ten Commandments, uh, which would later go on in 1949 to make Cleopatra, hmm. if you're familiar with that one. And the greatest show on earth in 1952. I think I heard with the uh, the Ten Commandments. I think it was that one where they had like these big Egypt sets and stuff like that. Yes, and Cleopatra they buried also. them in and like, but they buried them in the desert, like because they didn't want because it was the set was so big they couldn't move it back. And like the director <laughs> was like, I don't want anybody finding this or doing anything with it. We're gonna break it up and we're gonna bury it in the desert. And they did, and like I think somewhat recently they like discovered the set pieces in the desert. Like they they had like archaeological digs. I'm like, like can you imagine just being on a dig? It's like I found a like a a sphinx statue or something. It's like oh wait, it's just a dang movie set. <laughs> <laughs> for more than ninety years, the set for Cecil B. DeMille's silent film, The Ten Commandments, has been buried in the shifting sands of the Guadalupe Nimpono dunes archaeologists have been slowly unearthing the set for years and now they have found it <laughs> pretty much all of it like i can't imagine that it's just like just burying a whole <laughs> film set out in the desert just because oh so i'm going to get into since we're on the subject of the film we're going to talk a little bit about the jazz singer which is one, one. of those movies that you kind of have to talk about when you get to sound. 1920s and sound. So The Jazz Singer is the defining movie that adds sound into uh, into movies. Um, you were talking a little bit earlier about how everyone had very big expressions because they had to act for words and things that weren't happening. It feels very reminiscent of live stage acting. Yeah. Because you need to have huge expressions for people to see you further into the audience. And in this sense, I, I encourage everyone to go look up the jazz singer Blue Skies. So in it, he is sitting with, I believe, his mother, and he's singing and playing Irvin Berling's, or Berlin's Blue Skies. I think how they did the sound synchronization was they had, like, they just had, like, previously recorded, like, music, I think, 
and they just they synced the film up with it kind of like how they did with um or maybe they it was the other way around because i know like the early like mickey mouse cartoons that like were like one of the first sound cards not the first but like one of the first sound cartoons basically what they did was they just performed the whole soundtrack <laughs> like all the sound effects and all the music and i was like i can't imagine this like being in a room with like an orchestra like going like ah ooh, ding, ding, like hitting on buckets and stuff <laughs> like that honestly it sounds kind of fun that I does like sound the fun to do it like just you and a bunch, like three or four other people, just like just banging on stuff, just like going. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was still a thing. I would love to do that. So for the jazz singer, I'll, I'll take us back to this real quick. The jazz singer has a very generic plot. It's basically, uh, dad says you're not good enough to the son, and son goes, "I'm good enough." Yeah, he he, he basically <laughs> lives in the shadow of his dad. Uh, is his dad also a jazz singer? I believe his dad was... Because I don't think I've ever seen the jazz singer. I know about it, but I never have watched it. So I'm very interested to hear. I am unsure what his dad... Actually, yeah. Because his name was Jakey Rabinowitz, or Rabinowitz. And he changes his name to Jack Robin and becomes a jazz singer uh, and attempts to build a career as an entertainer, Entertainer, but his professional ambitions ultimately come into conflict with the demands of his home and heritage. So basically he's trying to go off and become a jazz singer and his parents are like, no, don't do that. But he's singing for his grandma or his mom and she's like, you're so good, keep like, doing this. Like You can do it. So here's the thing with this film. The story is... I mean, kind of generic by today's standards. You're living in the shadow of someone else, and you're torn between family and what you're good at. We've seen it a million times. The uh, the one thing that we've got to point out with Jazz Singer. Oh, I think I know, yeah. The ending. Uh, so after he finally gets accepted by his father, he goes and he plays in a concert. The thing is, it's the 1920s, and he plays the concert in blackface. Which, <laughs> yeah, I I almost forgot about that. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit painful to watch the ending of the film. I've only seen three pieces: the beginning, Blue Skies, and the ending concert. And I didn't know what the ending concert was about. I was reading about it in a book, the jazz singer, and I watched the ending, and I was like, ah, no, <laughs> this does not fly by today's standards. Ooh. And uh, yikes, manga, hard to watch, but. It was revolutionary for the time, and that doesn't necessarily make it okay. Hey, we gotta we gotta accept our history warts and all, you know. Exactly, and Helps I think us that's get why reviewing the decades like this is a good way to do it because there are bad things that happened, yeah. and not it's- everything is perfect in history. And in this sense, this film was revolutionary, but it also did some bad things too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, especially with like. You know, the whole, it's like, you know, you got like minstrel shows and stuff like that. And they're like horrible, but there are things from them like musically that like carry on throughout music as it goes on. You know, it's like, it's pretty much just a case of taking what you need and leaving the rest. It's like, you know, there's bad things and sometimes there's stuff in that bad things that we kind of 
take along. She's like, okay, I'm going to take you because you're not as bad as this other stuff over here. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, when you just look at like the 1880s to the 1920s and look at minstrel shows or really any type of entertainment you're doing, I just always cringe. Yeah. A lot of the times, because in the 1800s to the late 1800s, you have a lot of Civil War shows because whenever a war happens, then a lot of media comes out about a war. And you have a lot of Civil War shows that have to do with uh, slavery, freeing slaves, and just all that stuff. And then you get back into the 1910s and (laughs) industrialization and... Yeah, things get really weird again. Jim yeah. Crow laws in the yeah, 1900s or the whatever. The waters start to get really muddy. Yeah, but then eventually, I mean, it took a while. It took till the 60s. I wouldn't say necessarily fixed it, but we started going in the right track in terms of media. The thing is with uh, media, <laughs> I mean, a lot of the times the 1920s, like we were saying, the films get destroyed, but a lot of the times with media, sometimes things live on, and sometimes they should just... Uh, to quote Star Wars, something, oh no, now I forgot my quote. It was like, forget the past, kill it if you have to, something like that from yeah. Adam Driver's character. I think that does sound familiar. But yeah, there's all sorts of stuff like that. It's like, you know, it's like the jazz thing. It's like, oh yes, this is a very revolutionary sound film, but there's blackface in it. And it's like, or if you look at, I don't know, like Birth of a Nation, where it's like, oh yes, this has very revolutionary like cinematography in it, but it's a really racist movie, like yeah. horribly racist, and it brought back the Ku Klux Klan. But the, it is it is very terrible. But we got better films as a result of it because now we don't sit around filming trains and train <laughs> stations and play them in theaters anymore. So I think it's kind of an improvement. So sometimes you got to take the good with the bad, you know what I mean? You just got to kind of, it's like you got to kind of find the diamonds in the rough, you know? That is very much so history in a nutshell. You got to find the good parts of history that actually Like you still have to be aware of the bad stuff, but you don't have, you know, you got to kind of, (laughs) you you got to embrace all of it. Because if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Exactly. So uh, I think the last film I've got on here for a little while is The Big Parade. So, you know, racism, religion, and war. It's a huge part of the 1920s. And The Big Parade is the biggest financial success of the silent era. They made so much money off that compared to every single other silent film that came out. So The Big Parade is by MGM, and eventually... Uh, it was the most profitable movie for close to when did this come out this was 1925 for 14 years which is a very very long time when it comes to movies radio anything entertainment wise the next film that's just blew this one out of the water was gone with the wind 1939 and then after that the next film that grossed higher than 1939 was i believe war and peace that seems about right. So, the story is basically illuminating the devastation of war because everyone was so excited in the 1910s to go off and fight and kill people. Then they came it's back. Like, and I'm gonna like, go off and be a hero, and then you get out there, and then your buddy's getting blown up next <laughs> to you. It's like, oh, 
Oh so no, being now a, I have PTSD and like a, very, very bad things. Mental like, trauma, physical trauma. It's like, and they talk about, it's like, oh, all these people tried to, like, desert and, like, they killed them or, like, arrested them. It's like, man, if I was there, like, I would be running away, too. Like, yeah. I'd go AWOL. Well, and I mean, the way that the war was set up, we talked about this last time, where you're just charging into no man's land after firing some artillery and hoping that they don't shoot back. And there's just so many bodies everywhere. It's just good old mindless chaos, hassling ever hassling. So this story depicts the devastation of war of ordinary soldiers so it's not super soldiers it's not the commanders or the captains or like special people throughout the army it's showing real normal soldiers just grunts just regular infantrymen yep just regular infantrymen and dying it's written by a world war one veteran lawrence stallings who lost one of his legs in northern France. So I think he knows the horrors of war when it comes to... Yeah. So he directs this after something so devastating to him and the war, the effects that the war had on him to try and use media as a way to show the effects that war has on people to help kind of get it out there. Um, it's The movie is divided into two sections and both sections are a little bit over an hour first section has no combat whatsoever uh it's basically when people didn't take the war seriously and everyone's kind of laughing and joking around it shows a lot of footage of people just hanging out in the trenches and hanging out back home and having a good time and how uh the allied citizens just as always it's like we're gonna win because we're the good guys and blah 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 and then the second part is battle scenes and the trenches, what the trenches looked like inside there, and just lots of death. And I think it's very interesting to set up a movie that way, especially with the impact factor that I, I'm sure uh, King Vider, this was the guy's name, or sorry, not King Vider, that was a different person 1956 Lawrence Stallings the World War One veteran and director I think it's very very interesting and a great way for Lawrence Stallings to impact an audience especially citizens who never had to fight in World War One like to show you it's like this is what we went through like you armchair generals it's like oh well if you went down to this part of the front we would have won the war tomorrow it's like you don't it's like you don't know that <laughs> this is what i saw it's like Not yeah even that. it's kind of like this one film that i watched called like i watched it in school it's called like all quiet on the western front and like it was just basically like you know this dude goes to war and i think he comes back after one of his tours or like he's like on leave or something and like all these people around him like are trying to talk to him about it like and he's just like he's seen like death in so many ways and he just can't talk about it to anybody because they like how could they possibly understand and there's like old dudes you know they're just like oh yes you could uh the law if y'all were doing this the war you'd win the war and he's just like it's like yeah <laughs> it's like yeah sure yeah whatever <laughs> well just, and the thing is with world war one they didn't know what 
PTSD was. Yeah, they called it shell shell shock. shock. Exactly, because shells would go off and people would get scared, and they're like, oh, you're just shell-shocked. You're afraid of the shells firing. No, there's a lot more to it than that. But they didn't know at the time. that's just trauma. Exactly. uh, But, like, also a reaction from just, like, the whole just the grisliness of world war one was uh i don't know if we talked about this last time but dadaism which is like a form an art form where it's just there's no rules there's just it's just just nonsense but it's so good and it's just like like it, it comes in like different means i think an example one just like the Mona Lisa with a mustache drawn on it or like a urinal flipped on its side with a signature painted on it and just like just complete nonsense because it's just like well you know he had this war doesn't make any sense so why should our art make any sense so uh in the sense of scientific scientific revolution which went 1700 to basically 1900s uh and then you've got the reformation which is the church's answer to scientific revolution um and then you have the enlightenment which the reformation is also a reaction to the enlightenment so all these people are starting to think and they're like what is the meaning to life yes this is the meaning it's a good meaning we're happy we'll follow god or we'll follow ourselves we are we come first as humans or god comes first in our lives life liberty and the pursuit of happiness exactly that is a key feature of the enlightenment is individual rights and people and then world war one happened and we start to see in the 1920s you get a lot more thinkers like nietzsche who are just like and dante's inferno and various other things that are just what's the point of life like really is it worth living or very emo (laughs) yeah it's very it's very unique in the sense of it's just a very dark take on life so some of the philosophies I can agree with from this time period, but a lot of the times when I'm reading it, I'm just so depressed. It's yeah, <laughs> like especially like Nietzsche and stuff like that. So like, I, just, that was a huge thing that came out of. I mean, World War One. Just as much as we don't of talk about it, disillusionment today, and chaos. Exactly, and everything that came out of it was so confusing. Yeah, I, I mean, it's true. We can look at. Uh, Lawrence Stilling's film well war is awful and people die and I'm going to show you on film how this works it's like this is what it really looked like didn't look like those fancy like you know paintings in the magazines of heroic men going like oh onward into the fray (laughs) it's like I am powerful yes it's like I'm dodging the shells (laughs) charge look at my muscles the shells have bounced off my pecs it's like (laughs) yeah it's like instead (laughs) it's just these scared basically children almost like young men just going through just the worst getting parts of themselves blown off and having to come home and wear very odd looking prosthetics like the facial prosthetics just very very strange looking sometimes they look really lifelike but it's just like the creative ways in which they like do them like they'll have like a face one and they'll like have it mat like fastened onto your face with like glasses like fake glasses that are attached to the prosthetic to make it look like just like oh it's just a man wearing glasses but it's just, <laughs> just like, a man wearing glasses looks like a phantom of the opera kind of mask it's like it's very 
Interesting. Very odd looking. And it's like, and also it's like with Dadaism too, I think it's even like, like nobody could understand it. Like they wrote a whole manifesto. It's like, this is Dada. This is not Dada. Blah, 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 blah. On and on and on. At the very bottom of the manifesto, it just says, this manifesto is anti-Dada. So it's just like, basically it's like, these are all the rules of Dada. No, they're not. It's just very contradictory. <laughs> and it's just like very different medias, like sound poems and like just weird films and stuff like that. It's basically just anything goes. It was basically just designed to just ruffle the feathers of the fine art world. And just, I think it came, I believe it evolved into surrealism or it's the other way around. But like cubism, like surrealism are kind of like, somewhat on the same path but dadaism is just way more weird and it's just a very interesting art form i remember i learned about it in like high school and i was like this is like this is something it's like i've been looking for this all my life <laughs> it's most just random yeah it's like it's it's kind of confused like some of the stuff gets lumped in with like modern art like when people talk about modern art they'll throw in one called fountain which is the urinal flipped on its side with a uh, signature but that is not modern art that is dadaism and i think it was like donated it was like submitted to like a gallery and i think it was there like and people saw it and they were just like this is horrible and offensive and disgusting why would you do this and i'm just like this is great <laughs> I love every bit of this. Just all sorts of stuff like that. Just like weird collages and like models. Just I think one that I know, like one that I can really think it's like a, it's like a sculpture. It's like a wooden head and it's just got random stuff nailed to it and stuff like that. It's just like really just odd, really weird stuff. I think the best way to describe the aftermath of World War One and everything that happened after it until World War Two is just eye-opening when it comes to culture and arts and music and media. Everything that they portrayed is just eye-opening from the terrors of war to the randomness of arts. You know, there's a window right there. I'm going to draw the window, except it's going to be blue and nobody can tell it's a window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll move on a little bit throughout the uh the decade because we're still stuck in like 1920 and then jumping forward to 1927 so kdka which is a radio station in pittsburgh because we're on the, the first radio radio oh, we're on the radio oh we're talking about radio on the radio wow that's so meta all right let's get meta <laughs> what was this station called it was a uh, kdka Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Good old Pittsburgh. Is the first radio station to offer regular broadcasts on November 2nd, 1920. As in probably once a week or once or twice a week. Was or... it just like reports or was it music? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I guarantee it was probably just reports. A lot of the recordings and music at the time, it's a lot harder to play over radio waves. I'm sure it might have happened. That is true. I think a lot of them they did like I want to say they did it live, some of them at least. But I know that, like, yeah, live music was a big thing in the 20s, too. People would go to dance halls and stuff like that. Oh, can you imagine? You didn't have a DJ anymore. You just 
have a live band right there, and you're like, all right, honey, well, let's go swing it to this jazz over Ah, there. this is really hot. This <laughs> is what I call hot music right here. I'm going to snap my finger and move my foot, and it's going to be a great I, time. <laughs> I remember I, like, I heard about it. Where did I hear about it? I don't know. It's this podcast I listen to every now and then where it's just, like, it's R. Crumb, who's, like, a comic. He's an underground comics artist from, like, the 60s. But he's like a big collector of like seventy eight RPM records, and he'll just like, like he he doesn't go on the show. It's not like his show. He's just a show that he's on that he like appears on. But he'll play like records and he'll like talk about them. And one thing he was talking about was like Chinese restaurants in like the twenties, which is weird. And it's just like now it's like Chinese restaurants are just like oh yeah, it's really cheap. Get some nice cheap food and. <laughs> you know egg rolls and stuff but back then it's like chinese restaurants were like really big lavish establishments with like you know big bands playing there they're like dance halls and stuff like that and it was just like the place to go it's like i can't imagine just a bunch of like 1920s people sitting around eating like i don't know low main or something like <laughs> in a really fancy place with this big like a big band playing some like really like nice like really snapping cooking rhythms you know what i mean <laughs> it's just like that's awesome it's like they really cared about like stuff like that they took great detail in the stuff that they like did for like establishments and stuff like that like all the old movie palaces and stuff now occasionally you still get a live sound a lot of the times it's at bars or a lot of those places and generally it's local artists of people who just grab their guitar their microphone start singing i was at a bar for about two weeks ago uh for a return of family friends and everyone was there and they had a band come in drums and piano lead singer and all that so it still happens but it's not quite the way that it was. If you're going to yeah. have a party or something, you're going to have a DJ remixing everything instead of an entire band sitting there playing entire 1980s rock or <laughs> 1920s swinging jazz music. I, I'd be awesome, though. You know, I got to find me a nice nice swing band. Just like, hey, can you, like, come to my house and just, like, just play? <laughs> just whenever I do things or, like, I'm just laying on my couch, just just play music. That's play, it. Be the soundtrack to my life. Can you imagine if you actually had just a band following you around playing the soundtrack to your life? You're just sitting in school, and they're playing very slow music that makes you fall asleep. And you're like, wow, that's perfectly. And then you're asleep. <laughs> See, I would I would love that. Like, I would actually love that. They would just, just play the that, mood that you're feeling, but in music. Just played everything. I'd, I'd be my life. <laughs> I love that. I mean, you kind of get that with headphones, but it's not quite the same as you walk into a restaurant and you're like, yes, table for 15, please. And they're like, why? Well, me and the boys here are awful hungry. We want to have uh, sit down and have some grub, if you know what I mean. I can't imagine. I can't imagine walking <laughs> into a restaurant and it's just you. And you're like, table for 15. And they're like, what? And then clown car happens and this orchestra comes out. No, they're just, they're all lined up single file behind you. And they're just <laughs> one by they're one. They're just, just holding their instruments as they go and sit in the booth. It's like, boys, snap your fingers. They all come out. It's like, <laughs> they just start. It's time to get some steak. <laughs> 
some lo mein and steak in our Chinese <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, going up in the year, uh, this is quite a few months later. Uh, what? I'm not good with months. Five. Uh, we go from November 2nd, 1920 to March 4th, 1921. There was an unidentified American soldier from World War I whose body was recovered. They put his body in the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and that's where the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier started at Arlington National Cemetery. That's right. He was the first unknown dude. I'm sure there were plenty more people who lost their dog tags and died, but he was the first body recovered. I think there were a couple of them, and I think they identified one of them, I, I believe. Probably wasn't the first guy, obviously, but I know, I remember hearing about it. I believe, I think it was when I went on the DC trip, or like around that time, but they were like, oh yes, there they were like three of them, but one of them was ended up being identified, so there's only like one or two of them, and I was like, that's good. I'm glad they found them. <laughs> so... The 1920s, early 1920s, is a golden age in American history. Always, always in our textbooks we talk about the roaring 20s. This is where you get jazz. This is where you get just so much good stuff. Now, Prohibition was 1919, very, very late into that. So they start off this golden age with alcohol being banned because of good old Westerville, Ohio, right where we are right here. And, yeah, uh, we did it. <laughs> we did it, guys. We changed the nation. Probably not for the better, but we changed it. And then they changed it back, and everyone forgot about Westville. <laughs> They're like, you, you so-and-sos, we'll forget you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're starting off this decade. Everyone's feeling really good, except for Germany. Germany's feeling really bad. Uh, basically, with World War One over, World War er, World War One, all of the nations got together. And at the Treaty of Versailles said, hey, by the way, Germany, you pay for all the damages you did (laughs) because all of the other nations that you fought with, all the other empires, the Ottomans, the Austro-Hungarians, they all fell over the course of World War I. Their empires collapsed, but you're the only one left, so you pay for everything. And Germany is like, well, we can't really disagree with this because we lost. And uh, They all just like pointed at Germany. It's like, you. (laughs) (laughs) It's your fault. And uh, then they also said, oh, by the way, uh, military crippled, and you're not allowed to have anything machine gun related, so you can only have bolt-action stuff, and if it fires more than, like, two bullets or something, then it's considered this or that, and just a lot of restrictions. They really did that? Yeah. They, they crippled Germany because they— No wonder Germany tried to fight the world again. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is—I'll I'll get into it uh, a little bit more in the 1930s— uh, But basically, Germany, Prussia had, before it united into Germany, had caused European world wars, I think, two, three times, maybe. And Europe was just fed up with them. And then they formed into Germany and then fought Europe again. And Europe's just like, look, we're we're done with you just attacking everyone around you. You can't be this angry at the French. Come on. (laughs) So that eventually led into, this is very interesting, in the 1930s when Hitler was building his armies, um, he actually created the MP40, which is a machine pistol. That's what MP stands for. And it technically did not violate the terms of uh, the Treaty of Versailles. 
because the Treaty of Versailles was like, you're not allowed to have like automatic weapons or anything like this. But the MP40 was a semi-automatic, fully automatic, which is very weird. It goes more like instead of so it's not really a machine gun, but it's a machine pistol also. You can shoot a lot of bullets, make someone dead. Exactly. And it's a pistol. It's not really a pistol. It's a submachine gun. But at the time, it was classified as a pistol, which then made it so that way Germany was able to make lots and lots of them, and the world would be like, oh, well, it's just a pistol. It's not like it's rifles or anything. Boy, were they wrong. (laughs) So that's what led to, with all those restrictions that happened in in the Treaty of Versailles, that's why Germany started building up these very unique and different weapons that then everyone else goes, cool, we're going to do the same thing except faster. We're going to do it faster, bigger, might not work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, looks at the Japanese in the 1930s and 40s when they uh, were fighting. A lot of their guns just didn't work very well. Um, oh, I guess this is a good time to get into it. So World War One and the 1920s. We'll get about the or we'll get in this a little bit more when we start World War One or World War Two next week. But the Japanese by this point were island hopping because they're on a giant island and they were like, we want to expand. And then they walked to the coast and then they walked to the coast on the opposite side and said, we can't expand. So they decided, all right, we're gonna go kill everyone and take their islands. Oh my because god! Because the Japanese realized that, I mean, they're not gonna beat China. China has been standing for thousands of years and there's a lot of times like Vietnam uh, beat the Chinese really early into Chinese history and then they just never went back to fight Vietnam so there was a bunch of farmers too at the time so it was was very reminiscent of Vietnam when they beat the Americans Uh, but the Japanese then went off and started taking those islands and America didn't care but then they embargoed American trade and then America said we don't like you as much japan did yes oh that's not good and then uh, the americans didn't like them as much and then pearl harbor happens in 1941 and we go to war with them so there was there's a little bit of boiling up until that point but uh back to the 1920s that's what's happening with japan that's what happened that's what's happening with the access powers um germany is just now starting to get the nazis (laughs) i mean yeah when they basically, were just a bunch of ragtag group of weird people, and they, uh, and they were like, it's like, you guys are, and everyone was just kind of like, oh, these guys are crazy, those Nazis. But then, well, then they they took over, and then everyone was like, oh, no, these crazy guys actually went and did it. So the thing with the National Socialist Party uh, the Nazis, they started in the 1920s. It's just that Hitler didn't come around until way later. So technically, they were very, very active. Well, they weren't very active, but they were active in German politics, attempting to take control of the government. The and thing everyone is, thought they were just nuts. Exactly, <laughs> which is really exactly. funny to think about. Everyone thought it was all of the stuff that they brought to the table was stupid and wouldn't help Germany. So. Germany as a democracy now is uh, being influenced by your conservatives and your liberals and everyone's trying to fix the government but it just keeps getting worse and worse because if you have trillions of dollars in debt 
and you don't have trillions of dollars, you're going to keep printing more money. But if you print more money, that means there's more money. And the more money you have, the less valuable it is, which is why the penny now is practically worthless. It is, It costs more, more to, to print make, a penny yeah. than it does to... <laughs> but it's still considered one cent because we can't have half a cent because that would throw off our, you know, one, ten, fifty, our uh, multiples of ten. So... Yes, they were actually active in Germany at this time. In America, um, this is where. Hold on, let me let me check here, if I get my history right. So, in the 1920s, America at this time uh, has just gotten their thirtieth uh, president, Calvin Coolidge. You don't hear about that guy a lot. <laughs> 1923 to 1929 was his presidency. Um, I remember, what did I hear about him? All I remember hearing about him is that he was apparently really shy because he didn't really speak publicly very much. That's about all I know about him. Yeah, I, d- I actually I don't remember him at all. I, I consider myself pretty versed in history, but apparently not the Americans, or at least not American politics of the 1920s. But to be fair, it has affected us, and it's not... So, uh, so what old Cal do? That's actually a good question. Let's let's pull up some stuff about Calvin Coolidge. Some of the other people that were around in this time uh, were Warren Harding, which I believe was early 1920s, and then Herbert Hoover, who I know Hoover. Yeah, didn't a lot of people like blame him for prohibition? They're just like, "You're an idiot. We hate you, Hoover." <laughs> well, actually, Herbert Hoover. He was vice president, I believe, with Calvin Coolidge, and then he got elected in 1929 and went to 1933. Uh, so he no, didn't they get blamed, blamed him. For, I think they blamed him Great for Depression. the yeah. Yep, because the thing with Herbert Hoover was, I mean, we have recessions and the economy goes bad, and it's happened in the past. So Herbert Hoover was like. What's well, gonna fix itself because it always does. I mean, even with he's like, ah, don't worry about it. You guys won't like try to kill yourselves or anything like that. Yeah, and they didn't. It was more of a we don't have anything, so we're just gonna die off anyways. Yeah, it wasn't. We didn't see really. A, I'm sure we saw a rise in suicide, but it's Although more there of was there's a lot of people like jumping out of windows and stuff like that. Yes, and there was a lot of natural disasters too. Um, the Dust Bowl. So basically. Uh, he finishes his term, and everyone's like, Hoover? Terrible. Terrible. And this is getting into the 1930s now, and that's where you get Franklin D. Roosevelt. That's a story for another time. That's a story for next week. So uh, let's go into a little bit about Calvin Coolidge and what his achievements were. And one thing I f- think we forgot to talk about, which I don't know how, was... One of the greatest American novels ever to be released in the 1920s. In 19, I believe, 25, you got F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Ah. That's one of my favorites. I got some bad news for you. Why? Oh, that's one of my least favorites. <laughs> I loved it. I read I it in high school, and I, I just couldn't find the interest. I'm sure if I read it now, I might I enjoy it a bit sure, more for like, what it was. At first, I was like, this is all right. And I don't know why. It's just the way 
things are like described and like the way I don't know the way it's written it's like I'm like I'm like I like this a lot I don't know why like I, I don't know what it is about it that I really like I can't explain it but I remember when I read it in school I was like I love this book but I just can't I can't quite put my finger on it it's got a power to it but I know uh well this is a this isn't the 20s but uh another one of my one of my favorite authors Hunter S Thompson who wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas he uh I guess he was a really big fan of S Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby and he would like type out the entire book on a typewriter repeatedly just because he wanted to get the rhythm of the book and think it would make him better at writing which I think it did because he wrote really great books but I think it's a good book like captures it captures the time period pretty well just at least the the whole lavish spending and the I guess new money-ness of the 20 the roaring 20s and like the bootlegging and all the parties and stuff so I've got some stuff on Calvin Coolidge here in 1923 Calvin Coolidge is sworn into office um nothing too crazy about that he's in plymouth vermont is where he gets sworn in and he's sworn in by his father uh as the 30th president of the united states states almost immediately uh what was that movie called the movie that revived the kkk birth of a nation yes that came out and then the KKK saw a massive increase to people over the next two years. So the first thing Calvin Coolidge does in office, he puts an into he puts in martial law, and he attempts to destroy the KKK. Hey, because they were starting to yes, that's was, good. That's good. You know, why don't we talk about old Cal? I like that. Well, from that point on, he doesn't really do much. Like he he took a good first step with trying to stop white supremacy. But uh, he didn't really do much else after that. He did uh, the Soldier's Bonus Bill, which basically pays veterans for being veterans, for having fought in the Great War. That's good. Um, That was 1924, uh, so this is a year into his presidency. Uh, And then about halfway into his presidency, he does something that uh, makes him look bad. Oh, no. What does old Cal do? He passes a new immigration law. And he basically bans Japanese immigration into America. Cal. But. Come on, Cal. The people who were not affected at all by this law were the Canadians and the Mexicans who were still allowed to immigrate without any issues whatsoever. uh, So he's just, he starts off with like, I'm going to fight white supremacy. I'm going to pay veterans for their you know PTSD and everything that they did for us in World War One. I. I don't it, like the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I feel like you're going backwards here, Cal. <laughs> oh, come on, Cali boy, come on. So at this point, um, the in 1924, the Republican Party nominates Calvin Coolidge and Charles G. Dawes. Never heard of that guy. And the Democrats with John W. Davis and Charles W. Bryan, uh, and the Progressives with Robert Laugh. Robert La Follette and Burton K. Wheeler. I heard of the Democrats. I didn't hear of the Republicans. Um, but anyways, all those parties get nominated. Uh, I believe the progressives by this point were dying out. And 
you know, obviously you have the Democrats and the Republicans now. So, uh, so campaigning starts. Uh, he signs. What does he sign? Hold on, let me find it. Uh, the suspense is killing me. <laughs> so he he wins the election. Okay, um, good, that's good. He won. Yes. Oh, that doesn't make sense. How does he win the election one year after he was elected? Because he was signed into office in 1923, but he wins the election in 1924. There's something not right here. <laughs> Something's not right. Mm-hmm. So here's what happens. You have the Scopes trial. Have you heard of that? Sounds familiar. So uh, this is very, very interesting in terms of theology. So religion versus atheism. What do we teach in our schools? Oh, so the Scopes you know this, trial. This does sound. Uh, this is starting to sound familiar. John T. Scopes was arrested in Dayton, Tennessee, for uh, teaching Darwin's theory of evolution in school. It is one of the first ever uh, cases that captures national attention, because you've got everyone who. You know, you've got the Christians, you've got the atheists, and then you've got all these other populations that are weighing in on whether or not public schools should be teaching Darwinism and evolution, or if they should be teaching, uh, it's not called Christian generation. Um, oh, uh, I can't wait. remember the word. Theism. No. <laughs> Theism is just a belief in a God. Oh. Um, so nah, basically... <sighs> this is going to bother me. Uh, Wait. Uh, it's not constructionism. It's creationism. Creationism. Thank you. Christian creationism or Darwin and the theory of evolution. Uh, and this is a very, very interesting case in which, like I said, the entirety of the nation starts to draw in on and formulate on. This is also very heavily covered by radio and newspapers. Scopes loses the trial and pays a $100 fine, which doesn't sound too bad now, but I I guarantee that was... $100 is a lot. I was going to say that. Wait, he lost Scopes? He lost. Now that's just wrong. Now, eventually, this gets overturned, and we see uh, basically people saying, well, if there's freedom of religion, why are we teaching a religion in public schools when everyone who attends public schools isn't of the same religion the separation of church and state exactly so eventually this gets overturned because they realize the separation of church and state isn't there if you are teaching this religion and creationism is how this worked then it's not fair to uh, like a muslim who comes in and is hearing christian creationism or um like a taoist or a buddhist um although buddhists quite a bit different because um, it's a religion, but it's not. It's more of a way of life. It's like it's a just, philosophy. Exactly. But the Buddha got deified, so there is an argument on whether or not it is a religion because people who follow Buddhism very much so, not all the times, a lot of the times it's the practices, but people who follow Buddhism can sometimes, I mean, just keep Buddha as a god, I guess. I don't know how else to word it besides... He got deified by some people, and now there's an argument to be made that it's a religion, Hmm. Um, which is very, very interesting. Uh, So now, Calvin, 
uh, Coolidge after his valiant attempt to enact martial law and stop the KKK, <laughs> they demonstrate in Washington holding over 40,000 people in protest to Calvin Coolidge in his martial law. Over the KKK? So the KKK had 40,000 people oh. that basically protested the government and what Calvin Coolidge had done what two did, years earlier. What did old Cal do? Did he say, get out of here? <laughs> uh, at this point, I don't think he really does anything besides go, 40,000 people is a lot of people. We got to fix that. It's like, we must destroy them. So at this point, this is very interesting. America starts to be seen for being a world player. We had fought the Spanish-American War. Uh, We went to war with Cuba. Yeah. We won that war, the Bay of Pigs stuff, and yellow journalism and all that. The Bay of Pigs? Yes, not Bay of Pigs. I was about to say, that was in the 60s. I was going to (laughs) say, like, that doesn't make sense. That's 1960, and uh, no. Uh, yellow journalism and all that. Um, we did go to war with Cuba. I think do it know is about, Spanish. I do remember war. the yellow journalism with the uh, there was blood on the streets and blood in the doors and blood everywhere. And blood. there just wasn't at all. It's just like <laughs> you're lying. So what happened was an American ship got sank under mysterious uh, circumstances, and they're like, "It was the Spanish," because there was a lot of uh, racism towards the Spanish at this point Poor in history. Spanish. Um, that's why we have the well, they Spanish named the, flu. Yeah, they named the flu after. Him. And they, like, we don't actually know where the Spanish flu started. It's just that everyone's like, well, we hate Spain, so we're going to put the Spanish flu in so Spain. Yeah, Spain, you, you're you <laughs> lame, dude. You, you, you're, you, It's your fault. We got this flu. Spain has so much interesting history during this time Poor because Spain. they're going through revolutions. They're trying to decide who they are as a nation. Uh, but anyways, Spain is such a beautiful place too. And you got like oh, Gibraltar and Ibiza and Barcelona. It's like why are we why are we picking on Spain? Leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, so America is like, well, we know we can't beat England, and we don't want to do that again because they've beaten us twice at this point, and they burned down the last White House. They're just going. Down We're the gonna list. fight Spain. It's like, uh, <laughs> Spain. Do we have any problems with Spain? Well, no, oh, not really. Now. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's go to war with Spain. <laughs> yeah, so we fight Spain, we win, um, and after World War One, everyone realizes, hey, this America guy started as a colony, but he actually has a, uh, they actually have a point to be here in a world stage. Um, so the world court has been formed by this point, and generally it's just a bunch of Europeans, uh, but America... They join the court? Joins the court. Yeah. And this is where you eventually see... Um, like NATO and all these other world organizations that America is a part of in modern day. The Allies form a world court after um, after uh, World War II. But at this point, in 1926, the Americans joined the world court, uh, and Calvin Coolidge and his Senate are the ones who are 100% supportive. Well, you know, supportive enough. Maybe not 100%. Uh, in 1926, also, we had a cancellation of French debt. Basically, the United States was like, hey, France, you got beat pretty early on in the war, but you're not using that money because everyone's dead. So give us some money, France. And uh, France was like, okay. And now 
close to 10 years later, United States is like, hey, so we're not going to pay that back, right? Like, we helped you win. And France was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so they canceled the debt. <laughs> um, in 1926, we talked a lot about aviation last time. This is really cool. The first ever successful flight over the North Pole. Oh, who did it? Uh, Rear Admiral Richard E. Byrd and Floyd Bennett. Good old Byrd and Bennett. Floyd and Bennett? Floyd and, or Byrd and Bennett. Byrd and Bennett. His name is Floyd Bennett. Floyd Bennett. Uh, Calvin Coolidge also put out the Air Commerce Act, um, which what's that? Basically allows him to do air mail. Um, and hey, another good another point for exactly. Cal. A lot of aviation is happening in these twenty thirty years until we get to World War II, uh, where a lot more aviation happens, but very very quickly. Oh yeah. So he this would lead. Um, sorry. The Air Commerce Act also allowed people to become pilots and have their own aircrafts and fly around. So aviation is really starting to take off at Cal this point. Cal did that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We got another point for Cal. That's um, good on him. And then about a month later, uh, the Army Air Corps uh, are... Yep. They are founded along with the Distinguished Flying Cross. Ah, so so that were they like the precursor to the Air Force? Yeah, that that's basically what it is is the Air Force. Um Now, that's... this is something in terms of uh political history that's interesting. The court gives the president the right to remove cabinet members at his own discretion. So once you appoint all these people and, you know, if some of them saying an opinion you don't like or whatever the reason is, you can now go, all right, you're dismissed. You're no longer a part of my uh, cabinet. And then like you're you bring in someone else. You're not invited to my birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like your political opinions. We were going to go to Chuck E. Cheese's, but now you're not invited. You will have your slip, your pink slip in the mail tomorrow. So this is also quite interesting. Uh, towards the end of his presidency, the United States and Canada um, established diplomatic relations independent of Britain. So we, as two nations, act um, as allies. We decide we're going to make these relations, probably some trade stuff in there, and Britain did not have a say on what Canada could do. That's so good. by this point, we're starting to see Canada friendly become... Neighbor, our friendly neighbors to the north. And that's right. Friendly neighbors to the north. Um, and then... So that's good, you know. Just hanging out with it's like, hey Canada, let's be friends. Let's not tell Britain about it though. They're not as cool. So in nineteen twenty seven, um, this is another one for race. A lot of race stuff was happening in the nineteen twenties. I didn't realize Absolutely. how much is happening. It's wow. always happening. It's always happening, but like the nineteen tens we didn't discuss that much about race because the yeah. big things that happened were war and plague. But in the nineteen twenties we're going in the golden age and then we're going in the depression. Um, so people had a lot more time to focus on art and culture, and especially at this point, I mean, jazz is black, and Louis Armstrong, like, when I think of jazz, that's the first person that comes to mind, and he and a lot of other black artists made jazz what it is today by completely revolutionizing it, and all these people would just come and listen to it. Um, so that happened in the 1920s, and it's cool. It's awesome. uh, a lot of race stuff. But 
1927, Texas had passed a law, uh, probably a Jim Crow law at this point, uh, that says black people cannot vote in the Democratic primaries. And the Supreme Court is like, well, that's not constitutional. You can't restrict someone's right to vote at this point. Uh, So they struck it down. That's good good for his Supreme Court. I don't know who the people were in that. Uh, Lindbergh, Charles A. Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh? Yeah. He Ah. completes his first transatlantic flight in 1927 from New York to Paris on his monoplane. Good old Charlie Lindbergh. Good old Charlie. feel sorry about his baby, though. That wasn't cool at all. That wasn't. That was really bad. So at this point, we did not have term limits still um, for our presidency. Oh and yeah. In fact, I don't even know if we have term limits. I think it's just that unspoken agreement. That no, they we we brought him in after him uh, in. Okay. after FDR died because he was like, oh, I'm right. going for a third, and then like he died, and then they're like, whoa, <laughs> this could be really bad. <laughs> so so like, we're canceling this now. In 1927. The elections were starting to happen. So keep in mind, elections had to happen earlier because of the way that news traveled. It's not it's not now where you can, you know, just do half a year of campaigning and you find out like right now. So in nineteen twenty seven, uh Coolidge decides not to run because he didn't want a third term as president. Uh and basically he didn't want people to think he was a tyrant because he had already gotten two terms, and everyone else before him had either ever done one or two. And he was like, well, I don't want to run again because people will think I'm bad. So in 1928, he he begins the election by saying, I do not choose to run. That's and everyone's like, all right, well, I guess he's not running for the Republicans. Good old Cal. Doesn't want to be a tyrant. Just wants to be a normal dude. 1927, the jazz singer is released. Uh, Mexico has some conflicts in their constitution. (laughs) The United States recognizes uh, China, the the government of China. What do they recognize them as? That they exist. (laughs) (laughs) What? I don't know what's happening with China in the 1920s. I really haven't learned history of the... China for the past 100 years that might be something I have to start reading about um, but I'm sure they probably had another revolution of some sort uh, with the ending of the dynasties and basically China's or China America says yes your government is real we recognize it as a real government and we are going to sign tariff treaties not very exciting good old China <laughs> finally recognized China that's good 1928 Herbert Hoover is elected. Oh, no, no, no. He's not as cool as Cal. Yeah. I mean, Cal had a few things. The uh, he had a the few, complete he had, banning of uh, yeah. the Japanese immigration is definitely... <laughs> well, that's only one... I mean, so far from what we've learned about him, that's that's only one bad thing against him. He's got a pretty good... I will say, yeah, he's I, he's got pretty good he's got pretty good points right now from, in my book. Other I think than I that, might have to read into Calvin Coolidge just a little bit more and uh, figure out really what type of president he was because he's definitely looking good. But I'm sure there was a few other things in there that uh, yeah, that may hurt him. <laughs> yeah, I hope. I mean, 
I mean, he doesn't seem to like the Japanese very much, but you know, he's got well, the plane. He's yeah. got the air commerce thing going on. He's got the banning the KKK and all that stuff. He's seems didn't want to th- run for a third term because he didn't want to be a bad guy. You know, he seems like a pretty chill guy, <laughs> other than the other than the, uh, the xenophobia thing. Well, but, at know. this point, I'm pretty sure America and the Japanese were really button heads. I mean, they still got a decade or whatever, but. America just was not a huge fan of them taking over all these little islands. But America, at this point, was like, well, we don't really want to get involved with anything. And America's not become the world police, not till after World War II. So even after World War I, when they finally decide to get involved, they were like, well, you know, you guys can go back to doing whatever it was you guys were doing during World War I. We care, but we don't want to, like, hop in there. And, yeah. So we're going to go back in time a little bit to uh, a few more major events in pop culture all right so outside of his presidency in politics in 1922 reader's digest is published and uh, starts to become the phenomenon it is today i know i can't believe that's still around after all this time it's almost 100 years good old reader's digest good old reader's digest in uh 1925 great gatsby that's a good one. Uh, we already talked about the Scopes trials in 1925. You got, well, one thing I can say with like the Phantom of the Opera is that the Opera House set was actually the oldest surviving film set in the world because it was, it was a Universal film. So they filmed it on the back lot of Universal. They like built it on a soundstage. And a like a, a large portion of the opera house set was around, but it's not around anymore because they destroyed it for Harry Potter World. <laughs> 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 so now, you know, and like when I heard about that, I was like, well, yeah, Harry Potter World. I guess that's cool. I mean, I never really got into Harry Potter too much. I thought it was kind of cool, but when I found that out, I was like, well. Well, that place isn't so cool. They they tore down history. I was like, that's not nice. It's <laughs> not nice at all. That's very uncool of them to do that. Those dang Harry Potter people. <laughs> you oh, can uh, join the Christian moms in the early 2000s that wanted to ban the book for witchcraft. I wouldn't go so far as to do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, Nothing lasts, I guess, but it had a pretty good run for lasting so long. That's kind of neat. But, you know. Oh, well. What are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, we'll destroy history if we want to, you know? Yeah, so, I mean. in uh, 1926, Winnie the Pooh is created, and a lot of his uh, stories are starting to yeah, be released. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, we're going to go back up to 1927. This is seems like a really good year for just stuff. Um, after the influence of jazz in the early 1920s, you get the jazz singer. Um, and you also get the Spirit of St. Louis with Charles Lindbergh. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of 1927, Ford creates its 15th, 15 millionth Model T. 15 million? 15 million by that point. That means we we started 1910 with, you know, cars were for the rich. There was maybe one or two around. And now by the end of the 1920s, 15 million 
people got cars. People got cars. <laughs> people people really got cars. People got 15 million people got their cars. Well, I mean, what's the point to a horse when you have to feed it and you have to give it water and you have to clean they, up after it and they take up space and they die. And they die. Exactly. And then with the car, I mean, sure, it well, dies. A, a car dies, but but you, in the sense of you don't have to feed a car. You know, cars go on and on. Those, I mean, from what I have heard, like the Model Ts, like they were like rugged. Like they they kept going. Like I have ridden in a Model T. You it have. Is a, it's a very interesting car. It's it's very yeah, bouncy. It's like it's like looking at it now it's like this car is really weird and how did people drive this thing because <laughs> like i remember i saw a video of someone like starting one up it's like okay you have to do this but you uh like i can't remember what it was like the pedals are different like basically it's like nothing like a modern car is and i'm just like man i'm glad we don't have to deal with that but hey they look really cool though so uh I'm not sure we're going to hit our music today. Oh, well. That's fine. I, I had Blue Skies, and Nate had a few things in here, but I, I really want to get into the final year of the 1920s. That is 1929. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> so 1929 is, at least for historical purposes, the year that the roaring 20s ends and the depression starts because nothing good can last forever and uh in 1929 there is the wall street crash and it ushers in the great depression it basically destroys uh this is by the way we always focus on the american aspect this is a worldwide great depression um, so yeah, it's kind of hard to think about that. Like when you learn about it in school, you only really learn about like America. But it's like it's kind of yeah. It's like this you got to think about it. it's like this all happened all over the world. This Germany's had this place. for a while, and then everyone else fell into it, and now everyone in at least Western history at this time, pretty much everyone, uh, is dying. Also, a great thing that happens: uh, the flu. The Spanish flu, influenza, uh, it, it shows up and it kills like 100,000, 100 million, something like that in the first year of it being around. And wow. uh, lots long, of people die. How long did it go on for? Uh, so technically the flu that we have today is still uh, like the Spanish flu. It just keeps evolving and changing. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different strands. Um, oh, I'm sorry. The Spanish flu starts in 1918, and this is the year that we... Uh, we conquered it. Basically. Got over it. So uh, I'm not quite sure what it says. It says 500 million people were affected, or were infected in four successive waves um basically i think we got down to like maybe a hundred thousand is my guess it basically the epidemic was over and uh i believe it might have mutated in 1929 also 
but from there you didn't worry as much about the flu um which That's is good. good a lot of the early stuff that happened was 1918 to 1920 and there was four waves of it and over the course of that time it killed lots and lots of people that's not good at all so uh in 1929 we see other people making air forces like the peruvians peruvians got it they made their air force yeah um in england we see the raf right oh i have no idea I, i was gonna say the royal air force Oh, I, I'm sure that was probably around. I, I wasn't actually looking at the Air Forces anymore. Oh, I was about um, to say. The British High Court ruled that Canadian women are people. <laughs> Yay! Good job. <laughs> wow, you know, like, we, in America, we're like, oh, yes, women can vote. And it's like, British just like, oh, in Canada? Yeah, women, they're they're people. <laughs> like, what? Britain just didn't care at all. They're like, all right. America was like, women can vote in 1920. And then Britain and I, probably followed suit pretty you know, pretty quickly after that, and they're like, "Oh, right, the Canadians. Oh, we forgot about them. Oh. Uh, women can vote in Canada too. Uh, women, women are people. <laughs> what a what a crazy concept that the <laughs> that the <laughs> British didn't understand. Um, here that you go. Women were people. The women are people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> took them took them a decade or two, or you know, a couple centuries. Or yeah, in Asia, uh, you see the Republic of China. And the Soviet Union, and this is their first conflict that they have. Oh um, yeah, that's when the uh, oh yeah the Re- the Russian Revolution yeah. was done in the in the twenties. Well, yeah. it started in the nineteen tens, but it's where they got what they wanted for exactly. better or for worse. You know, the one thing about all these history things, we never actually talk about the Russians, so we might actually have to take like we'll finish all the decades and then we go back and we do all right here's a hundred years of russian history from like 1900 to the 2000s because russia's always skipped over but they're always such a major player of world events in both europe and asia because they're i need to get up on my russian history all i I really know about is the the whole i know a little bit about the russian revolution and some of the weird goofy things that the uh the kgb was doing so at this point, the Chinese uh, seized control of a railway, and the Russians were like, hey. The Trans-Siberian Railway? Uh, the Manchurian Chinese Eastern Railway. Ah. Uh, General Secretary Joseph Stalin expelled Leon Trotsky. Yes. And adopted a policy of collectivization. And they also edited Trotsky out of all the pictures of him. <laughs> Yep. Which uh, is, it's like, you went through all that. It's like, Stalin's like, I don't, it's like, we don't like this guy anymore. And in <laughs> fact, I don't like this guy so much. Uh, how about you just edit him out of these pictures? Take him out. Take, take him, him out. out. All these pictures of him with uh, Lenin, uh, get him out. No, no, he didn't exist. So now T- we're going to go to bad. a huge event that happened in 1920. Whoops. I just smacked my microphone because I was scratching my eye. Uh, a huge event that happened in the Middle East at this time in 1929, um, there was a massive, massive riot between Muslims and Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, and it was over the access to the Western Wall of Jerusalem. Uh, I don't know what that means at all, but there was a riot and people died and Holy Land. Western Australia celebrated a 
Centenary. The centenary of Western Australia was celebrated. I don't know what centenary means. I'm not sure. Let's uh oh Google Centenary. The hundredth anniversary of a significant event. So I think that might have been Australia's revolution. Um hundred years of that. Yay, good for them. Uh and then we have the Afghan Civil War back in the Middle East which started in November in the preceding year um, and continued until October. So it starts 1929 in November and leads into 1930 October. Uh, finally. What do we got? What do we got <laughs> finally? Uh, finally, basically from here, uh, let me go back to North America. Uh Oh, this is Canada again. I don't care about Canada. Uh, oh, poor Canada. I mean, I care about Canada. We already talked <laughs> about them. Um, You're right. We have talked a lot about Canada. What do we got? Oh, I was looking at the... Ah, there we go. Um, finally, on December 3rd, at the end of history, we're going back to America with the Great Depression starting. Um, you have Wall Street and the crash that happens. And on December From 3rd... Oh, wait. I forgot. I just remembered the cause of it all. Because in the 20s, the reason why everything was so lavish and stuff like that was because a little thing called credit started to happen. Yes. And a bunch of people were like, wait, you can get free money and use whatever you buy, whatever? Yeah, let's buy these houses buy these cars let's buy these silken nice suits and dresses doesn't matter free money and then eventually uh the banks and the government were like well uh, not free you gotta pay it's like you guys got the money to pay that off and then they were like come on no. it's been 10 years man it's like no we do not so it's like okay well neither do we <laughs> so uh we are our economy is is we're we're going under and you're all we're all going down all right the whole world's going down woo and remember I... folks let that be a lesson make sure you pay off your credit card or else you'll end up like the great depression <laughs> you'll you'll end up in the dust bowl that's where people send you yeah that actually reminds me of a story i heard at like fourth or fifth grade it was basically used to be able to walk into a grocery store and say okay put it on my tab and then you'd pay it off at the end of the week except people are like okay put it on my tab okay put it on my tab put that tab on my tab <laughs> put that see that tab from like a month ago put that on my tab and they just kept doing that so like are you gonna you pay said, for this credit. t-model ford this fancy car you gonna pay for this car uh put it on my credit <laughs> Put it on my tab. What even is credit at this point? It's, it's like, just like a, it's like a way of saying, uh, just give it to me for free. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, free? Free? I'll, I'll sell it to you for free. It's like you can spend money that you don't really have? Wow. wow. <laughs> oh, well, and then next thing you know, you're, you've lost your house and your car and your suits and dresses. And next thing you know, You've lost it all. That's right. And then you try to go to the bank, and then the bank's like, well, we don't have money. 
So <laughs> so good luck with that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you have a whole generation of people hiding money in their walls because they don't trust banks or the government, which I think is kind of cool. Just cutting down walls and just shoving money into it can you just can you like especially like when people are like renovating houses they just find like money in the walls i mean that would be fun but that's fun for the person who put the money in the walls it would suck when you know you're in 2020 or whatever and you've been living in your house for 10 years and you forgot you had the money in there you move out next person finds it and you just lost like two million dollars ah yeah especially like your whole family she's like yes my grandparents lived in this house well let's re- let's redo these walls i don't think these are up to code these are old <laughs> plaster walls let's let's put some drywall up and then you tear the walls down and then you're like oh what's this like uh, almost a hundred thousand dollars in cash in 1930s cash which is probably worth a little more now and all these silver certificates which are like each individually worth a lot more now yeah, be my guest. Well, I don't mind if I do. I can't imagine being the person in the 1920s to actually put it in the wall and then you, you know, plaster up the wall again. Like, what are you going to do if you need it? Exactly. Well, that's what I'm thinking. It's like you could hide it in a drawer or like under your bed or something. There's no point in putting it in the wall because then you're going to go, oh, no, I've got to tear down the wall again. I, got I just it. spent five hours fixing it. It's like I got to hide it in the wall. The bank's coming. <laughs> I can't let the bank take my money away. So uh, this is this is a good way to end this century or the century. Ugh. A good way to end the decade. On December third, this what explain why he's so hated. On December third, U.S. President Herbert Hoover announced to the U.S. Congress that the worst effects of the recent stock market crash were behind the nation, and that the American people had regained faith in the economy. He was wrong. <laughs> he was very wrong. <laughs> Hoover. It's just like, it's okay, everyone. Everything's We're... great. No. It's like, yeah, well, uh, you're wrong, Hoover, and you are a goofball. <laughs> and we don't like you anymore. That's pretty much it. The rest of his presidency, like, he's known for, oh, no, that's Taft. Never mind. <laughs> what are you gonna say? Getting I, stuck in the bathtub? Exactly. I was about <laughs> to say that. I'm like, wait a minute. No, wrong fact. Well, who name? Who would we name the Hoover Dam after him? Do we name that after him? I don't know. I hope not, because he's he shouldn't have a dam named after him. <laughs> he a, really didn't do as much as Calvin Coolidge had done. I didn't. Yeah, realize. they should call it the Coolidge Dam. <laughs> I. That's what I think. I can't. I can't think of any. Would they name it after J. Edgar Hoover? Like, who'd they name this thing after? The Hoover Dam was named after Mr. Herbert Hoover, the nation's 31st president. Of course Uh, it was. He initiated the building of the dam on September 30th, 1930. uh, He he had that dam built during the Great Depression? Yep. What a guy. I'd get mad at that if I saw that in the news. Like, ah, they're building this big old, uh, they're building this giant dam out in the desert. So why'd they get the money to do that? I don't know, but it's money that we don't have, obviously. It's terrible. Basically, it was originally called the Boulder Dam. I think after that's... the Boulder Canyon Project Act, which is what allowed the money for. I think that's the dam. better. And then uh, Hoover was like, "Here's money," and they're like, "You know what? 
it's your dam now. Your dam. <laughs> Congratulations. You blocked <laughs> up water with your dam. And then you messed up the dang old economy with your lies. Oh, God. Uh, another thing about Hoover Dam, since we're on the subject for a hot second here, uh, this is this is awful, and I never knew it about the Hoover Dam. What? Uh, suicide is the tenth leading cause of death, with the rate of twelve point four per one hundred thousand population. At the Hoover Dam? No, just in general. Um, what? I'm not sure what's going to happen here. I'm Eight not... workers in the Hoover Dam project were buried alive while making the project. Oh, no. Like, where did they fall in there? I, or did I don't they know. die and they buried them in there? Well, you said they were buried alive? <laughs> I oh, I thought when gosh. it started off with this thing about suicide i thought it was going to say like it was one of the leading places of suicide in the world along the golden gate bridge no eight people got buried alive in the hoover dam and the cement's still drying too they probably still got a chance to get out uh the first person who died was jg uh tierney and he drowned uh did he did he drown in the water or the in the concrete <laughs> drowned in the water uh, December 20th 1922 and they found his body exactly 13 years later December 20th 1935 um, and then this is ironic the person the last person to die in the construction of the Hoover Dam project was his son Patrick Tierney <laughs> those tyrannies they got bad luck yeah they, they need uh, they need that. They need like to carry around a lucky rabbit's foot or something, or, like a horseshoe, just to keep them from falling into dams. Uh, so, Hoover does have a higher suicide rate because um, it's a giant thing you can jump off of. That doesn't surprise me. It's awful, but it doesn't surprise me. Uh, this is a very interesting history a little interesting tidbit about this dam i think this dam is just getting worse and worse yeah like i don't think i like the history behind this it's kind of bad i don't like this place the dam was suicide free for its first 18 months until a 60 year old lady jumped off what how did she get there was she just like passing through i i, I don't know the history of that that's uh, weird the Hoover Dam. And the Hoover Dam, this is a more fun <laughs> tidbit than a, some 60-year-old lady dying. Uh, the Hoover Dam is expected to last for 10,000 years before the structure crumbles. Wow. Isn't, I remember hearing that, like, part of the cement is, like, still drying, like, in the inner parts of it. Oh. I don't, uh, I don't know that one. Because it's, like... I mean, it must be in a place like where obviously no people can get to, like in the center, like deeper most part of the cement structure. But I remember hearing that somewhere. I don't know the validity, but it's it seems to make a lot of sense because, I mean, it's huge. It's a lot of concrete, and I feel like deeper into it where there's no air or heat or light that can get to it, it's probably still like, I'm still kind of not dry, still drying. <laughs> So one of the last things on Hoover Dam, and really just the last thing for us in general, um, I was going to end with Herbert Hoover's uh, "Everything is good, don't worry about it," and he was wrong. But this is a this is a fine one too. 
uh, Hoover Dam, despite it having downsides, uh, provides water to irrigate fields within Colorado and California. Uh, or sorry, it protects Southern California and Arizona from the disastrous floods for which hey. Colorado was famous. That's good. And it helps provide irrigation for farm fields. Uh, it supplies water. It supplies water power to Los Angeles uh, and hey. other cities in the Southwest. I guess Hoover, I mean, in name, he kind of bounced back a little bit. It helps 25 million people. They depend hey, on the well, water from it. With his money and his name, he, he's, he's doing something good. If it were to break tomorrow, uh, probably about half of 25 million people would die just from being drowned. Oh, there you go. There's well, your, we don't want that happening. There's your bad... Uh, well, and I mean, I can only imagine the amount of water. Uh, or, like, so many people rely on that water. If it were to break and kill that many people, then you would just see basically California. I think right now, die. all we have to worry about is not the dam breaking. It's the water running out. Ah. Uh, because they, yes. they got the droughts going on back there. Yeah. Water regrows. <laughs> not quite huh well, uh, I mean it is plentiful for until the most until it's not <laughs> yeah and say it's a renewable resource until it's not a renewable resource which is weird to think about because matter cannot be created nor destroyed yet we're running out of water in California <laughs> go figure I'm sure the Californians are just as confused I'm uh, yeah can, California seems to be really confusing right now with the fire and everything. Like. Fire, no water, extra water, whatever. <laughs> went from, the shorelines. Went from hippies to, to tech Scariest people. place on earth. <laughs> Scary tech people that are running stuff that I don't even know about. Oh, yeah. Uber started in, uh, in California and just all these Silicon Valley. There you go. And but then, anyways. Um, that was the 1920s, ending with 1929. Next week, we're going to get into 1930 and 1940, so there's going to be a lot of politics. There's the beginning of World War II. There's the end of the Great Depression um, and just a lot of world stage. I'll try and look into a little bit more Eastern history because a lot of the Western history happens, and by this point, we know what happens. You get Nazi Germany. Um, you get the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Um, you get America saying we're staying out of this, uh, and then you've got basically everyone else, the Blitzkrieg, and a lot of war stuff that happens. Uh, Einstein, all these people, and uh, the East is basically affected by Japan and the empire that Japan has built. So we'll get into a little bit on Japan. We talked a little bit today about how their empire is starting to grow with all the islands that they're taking, and uh, now we'll just we'll see what happens to them in the 1930s. All right. You've been listening to Retrospection Radio Hour right here on 97.5 WOBN, The Wild Card. Uh, next, we got a few top-of-the-hour stuff for you, and then we'll get your songs. This is Alien by Dennis Lloyd. That'll be coming up here soon. All right. We'll see you on the flip side. You have a good one, everybody. We'll see you next week.